We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Before you guys listen to another episode of the Corner Podcast, make sure you guys show your support for the show by clicking on patreon.com slash the corner podcast and showing support for both Andreas and myself. We're trying to bring you guys exclusive content for the new year. That means exclusive shows, guest interviews, fan appreciation episodes, a little bit of everything on a weekly basis. And the way you get that is by signing up on patreon.com slash the corner podcast. There's different tiers, whether you guys want to donate $5, $10, or $15 a month. You guys get exclusive content and access to us, yes, both Andres and I, every single week. And this way, we can bring you guys the stuff that you want, such as merch, live shows, and even bigger episodes of The Corner Podcast in 2019. Thank you guys for your support. Now let's get into this week's show. We're here. What up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Corner Podcast. Kel Danzman here with the old man Andreas Hale. And this week, we got a packed show for you. Combat sports to recap from last week. Um, we have, we're talking about LeBron James celebrating his son's victories on the court. Jason Whitlock coming out cooning straight out the gate. Talking about LeBron, we're going to give you our takes about all of that. But I feel like first, in true Andreas fashion, he's here to gloat and make fun of me. Because yeah. my Yankees are going through it. I mean, look, man. You got to tell them the whole story. Like, <laughs> I told, like, you're a Yankees fan. I told you at the beginning of the season, Yankees need starting pitching. When you were all excited about Manny Machado and Bryce Harper, I said, fuck all that. You got to line up starting pitching. 
That's, the only, that's how you're going to win the championship. Yeah, no, no, we're cool, we're deep. Then your whole team gets injured. <laughs> to be fair, we started injured. We got slightly healthy and continued to get injured. And then we're getting near the trade deadline. And you're, we're talk, and you're talking about how good the team is. They're in first place, whatever, whatever. I said, that doesn't matter. Seven-game series, you guys need starting pitching. No, 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 our lineup, as long as we can put points on the runs on the board, we'll be fine. No, you need starting pitching. You need starting pitching. Trade deadline comes. Well, before the trade deadline comes, I said, would you like to make a wager on this? Because the <laughs> bet ended up being – I just go to into these bets. That <laughs> All the time. I felt the, very confident about this. Yeah, the Yankees will be representing the American League in the World Series. You gave me the field. Initially, all I wanted was the Astros. Because the Astros just have a deeper starting rotation with just as potent of a lineup. But you took it a step further. You wanted, you said the field. I said, cool. That means the Red Sox, the Astros, the Twins, the Indians who are, look like they might be surging a little bit even though they got rid of Bauer. I said, cool. You need starting pitching. I, th- this, that bet, I took that bet knowing that you guys could probably get a starter. Because I felt like Bumgarner was out there. Stroman was out there. I felt like maybe Zach Wheeler. Maybe Noah Syndergaard, somebody, Bauer at the time. I thought, and I was so I was a little hesitant because I figured the Yankees would have to pull the trigger because they win win now mode. Trade deadline comes, you guys fucking pulled the New York Knicks and got nobody, absolutely nobody. To be fair, they were asking a lot from us. This is like the first time where every other team was like, "No, you guys are the Yankees. We're going to bleed you to death to trade anyone to you." But you know what? Any other team. I will take a mediocre trade. Like the Blue Jays screwed us in not giving us Strowman. Not the Yankees' fault. They took mediocre talent from the Mets. The Mets wouldn't trade us anyone. Because we're in the same city. That makes no sense. We never play each other. It's still New York. It's the Battle of New York. They, you know, they gave players to the Phillies. Wouldn't give players to us. Makes no sense. And then, of course, the Diamondbacks were just like, here, Astros, have Zach Greinke. Have the best pitching staff we've seen since 1907. Yeah, I mean, look at it. I mean, they got they got Grinky. They got. I mean, you got you got. I already told you it's going to be a problem. You got to see Justin Verlander and Garrett Cole seven games. Like, if you get by one of them, you're going to have to see them four times in a series yeah. total. Now we got six. And now you got to deal with Grinky as well. So that means that they'll install Brad Peacock maybe into a series. I mean, look, man. Plus, and, and then now they're healthy. Carlos Correa's off the DL. Y'all are fucked. Y'all better, y'all, and now, like, look, Voight is, on, is going to the DL. You don't know when Severino's coming back. And if he does come back, you don't know what he's going to look like. You, your top pitchers guys are what? They're, they're getting burnt out on the mound. Like, you guys have a solid bullpen, but you don't know what our Douglas Chapman's going to do in the postseason. So, yeah, you guys fucked up. But, well, you fucked up. I think the team is fine. Because even if you guys don't win the series this year or go to the World Series, you, got, you guys have a nice little farm system. You got a couple of guys that Clint Frazier and Debbie, when they come up, they should be very good. You're fine. But this season, it's about the Astros. No, but this, this marks a decade since winning. You can't go a decade without winning a chip. Yeah, you can. Most teams do it. You're just not used to it because you're the fucking Yankees. Yes, and this is the key. We are the Yankees. So, I mean, if we don't win it this year, next year's offseason, which isn't great because there's not a ton of talent, we're going to have to go out there and overspend. And an offseason is kind of like, eh, blah, which, which sucks. 
So we got to hope that maybe Madison Bumgarner will leave San Fran, which doesn't look like he wants to do. Doesn't really look like he wants to come to New York. We have to look like uh, maybe we get some one of the other, what, two or three decent pitchers on the market. Maybe get another bat for no reason. We don't even need bats. So it, it's just weird how it's all shaking out. And I feel like teams might be more opt to trade us next year, like in the offseason. But they just don't want to trade us now, like just out of spite. It's not even out of spite. Like you, you guys, your farm system is not all that great. Like it's not. Every, everybody, you guys are ahead of schedule. You guys shouldn't have been where you're at right now. Oh, yeah. Too. But, I mean, we, we have Clint, who but, but is MLB ready. Debbie, who has tons of hype, but I don't think, you know, he's as good as some other teams um, pitching prospects. But he's our number one prospect. And then uh, we also have an MLB ready third baseman who happens to be Howard, but we could have traded him too. But the point is, you're ahead of schedule. You weren't supposed to be here. Aaron Judge was never supposed to be what he became at all that quick. He went undrafted in a lot of fantasy leagues. He was the guy that nobody saw coming. He was six seven, you know, had a heavy bat, but they thought he'd strike out a lot. He, he's developed way faster. Then because of that, and because of you know everybody else, like DJ LeMay, who wasn't supposed to be what he came from from Colorado. So you guys are way ahead of schedule. Be happy. It's a decade. So the fuck what? But that's why everybody hates the Yankees. You either love the Yankees or hate the Yankees. You guys haven't won. You know how long it took my White Sox to win a motherfucking championship? <laughs> you guys are the White Sox but and listen I understand I, you guys didn't have to wait as long as the Cubs no we didn't but the point is is that you guys are so used to winning that a 10 year drought feels like hell you deserve a 10 year drought deal with it just like the Cowboys just like everybody else I mean even my Niners I'm a Niners fan we haven't won a Super Bowl in a hot minute we got close with the, against the Ravens but dog you're not winning this year it's okay because you guys didn't fill the void that I said at the beginning of the season that you needed to fill. And we because- can possibly still win. If shit breaks the right way and our bullpen holds up, we can still win. And if we win, if we even make it to the World Series, the trash talk on this year podcast and every group chat on Twitter will be legendary. People will have to mute me. I will not shut up. The entire time the World Series is taking place, you will not hear the end of it if my New York Yankees make it. Don't worry, though, because, like I said, you're already in the hole 0-1 in, in bets for me. So you won't enjoy this win too much because football season's starting. And you're a fucking Giants fan. Yeah, don't remind me. Listen, let's not, why are you just trying to bring stuff up? You're trying hey, to compound this. Is this how you want to start a show? Yeah, you know what we should do? We should go try out for the Giants to be their wide receiver core. I think we could make it at this point. They gave Kelvin Benjamin a shot. Like, he's bigger than me. He weighs a smooth 280. Like, I don't know why you just want to bring me misery. Misery upon misery upon misery. I don't understand. It's like, <laughs> it was your goal to start off this show. Let's get into the stuff, man. I'm, look, I'm tired of you. This is, this is co-host bullying. Picking on me for the umpteenth time. I can't even count because my team suck right now. We're going to get it together. All right. I needed a moment. So the first topic, now that we're moving on. LeBron James is supporting his son, Dre. And his son is out there. His son is dunking. Yes, it's a positive story. I'm trying to change momentum. So his son is out there. His son is dunking. They had a tournament here in Vegas. And LeBron's on the court. He's kicking his shoe off. He's celebrating. 
He's hyped to watch his son play. He's in the layup lines. It's an incredible experience for not only his son, but the other people on the team. Why is this a problem? It's not. But it is. Like social media, a certain group, a set of social media has found this to be a great problem. Yeah, conservative white Americans. Fuck them. And the black people who love them. That's going to be the title of one of our books. A book or a podcast. Conservative white America and the black people who love them. No, cooning for conservatives is a thing. It's good business in 2019. It's like a legitimate thing. So when we have these figures coming out being critical of LeBron, like what the fuck, do you want them to not show up at games? Like, because look, here's the issue. LeBron James is a basketball dad who has a son who's really good at basketball. Is he not supposed to show up at his fucking games? And if he does show up at his games, do you think they're not going to pay attention to LeBron James sitting on the sideline at a basketball game? They're going to pay attention. Now, his son happens to be good. It's not like Michael Jordan's kids. Bronny's good. Yeah. And so when Bronny makes a great play and LeBron celebrates, what the fuck is the problem? They say he's taking away attention from Bronny. No, he's not. He's bringing attention to Bronny. Because you know how many other kids play basketball and their dads don't really show up at the sidelines? There's a lot. There's a lot. <laughs> Ton. Too many. And you know, black kids especially. Young black kids whose dads never see a game. So, you know, and it, it may not even be the black father's fault. He might have a job. Mm-hmm. Shit happens. He can't show up. LeBron can. It's the offseason. He shows up to see his son play. Now, not only does he show up to see his son play, he's LeBron James. He's not like your average dad. So when he does show up, and he can give back because what drove me nuts is seeing conservative white Americas and the coons that support them, like Jason Whitlock, being upset that LeBron's in the layup line. Fuck that. It's not about him showing up, Bronny. It's about the rest of them kids having an opportunity to be in the layup line with the greatest player of this generation, hands down. That's an experience you can't take away. And you're going to be critical of that? Like, listen, crackers, and I'm, gonna, like, I'm just going to call it what it is. If you baseball-loving or hockey-loving motherfuckers got a chance to have Wayne Gretzky skate with you, you do it. Hell if yeah. that was somebody's dad, right? Or if it was goddamn Mike Schmidt or Mike Trout or any other of these white motherfuckers out here. Or it she was Tom kids. Brady out there throwing passes to his I'm son's just, team. Like, people are loving it. Like, we're black. So, and it, it's, so we celebrate a little bit different than a lot of white people. It's the same thing with baseball when they were on Tim Anderson for – for throwing the bat after a home run. Meanwhile, they didn't say shit when Trevor Bauer threw a ball from the pitcher's mound to seven field, which is impressive, but it shouldn't happen in the fucking game. But they weren't critical about Bauer like they would if Tim Anderson would have done some shit like that. We celebrate different. We are different. So when we support our children and what they do, and we're enthusiastic to see them perform and succeed, and if you're the person of the status of a LeBron James who can give back, and give all those kids a moment because Bronny lives with his dad. His dad is just dad. But to those rest of those kids, LeBron James ain't just dad. That's fucking LeBron James. Let that man have his moment. Let them kids celebrate. You white motherfuckers, shut the fuck up. And you black dudes that support him, you Jason Whitlocks with your ridiculous hairpiece, <laughs> saying he needs attention. Woo! Need attention. You, gave, you gave Whitlock the ether on Twitter. Man, it, it just makes me mad. It's and just, it's time. It, he constantly does this. This, I understand it's just stick, right? Like his, his gimmick is Uncle Ruckus at this point. It's what got him the job. It's what he has to do to keep the job. But at a certain point, like how much bullshit can you say out of your mouth 
until, you know, you, your hair piece just runs off your damn head. Like, at, at some point, you have to just feel inside like it's too much cooning. Dude, it's... I'm not, I, I, he has to be at this point. Like, how does he look himself in the mirror? I, I don't understand it. I don't. Listen, he does it every day. And it's not that hard for him because he keeps his teeth white. So the shit that he does, I mean, the antics, yeah, it's good business. It's what keep, keeps him on television. Candace Owens, Diamond and Silk. Like, th- there's people on my timeline that support Trump. It's good business to go against your own race because, I mean, look, we've been a a culture of, of traitors for a long time. There's been a lot of traitors in our culture. Jason Whitlock's one of them. And maybe he was never part of the team. I mean, this is the same guy that I got into it with because he said hip hop is a person is responsible for killing Sean Taylor. That's how me and him got into it. Cause he blamed the culture, not, not crime. He blamed the culture yeah. on killing Sean Taylor. So fuck that guy. And the fact that he's allowed a spot on the TV is good business, but he, there's no remorse cause he still drives a nice car. He's doing well for himself by throwing us under the bus. So when he sees an opportunity to trash LeBron James, which is, I mean, he's the same guy that said LeBron James was bringing attention to himself for mentioning when they put nigger on his garage door. Yep. He blamed LeBron James for that shit. Fuck that guy. Fuck, and if you, I'm sorry, listeners, if you listen to this to your kids, cover their ears. Fuck that bitch ass motherfucker. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, you, I'm pretty sure you called him a coon on Twitter at one point. I've, I called him a coon in an article and he emailed me. How am I a coon? Let me write an article on your website. No, coon. No. That's what I told him. I said, no, Uncle Tom. You cannot write an article on my website. <laughs> Fuck off. Yeah, that was when he was in the Kansas City Star. He No, nah, he was with Fox at the time. He was he with left. Fox then? Okay. He, he was doing, he was, he had joined Fox as a writer, uh, but he had just left the Kansas City Star. So His columns yeah. there used to be fucking ridiculous. They were. And, and, I, and I told him, because he was like, let me write an article on Hip Hop DX. And I was like, no, let me write an article on Fox. Like, he was like, you have that power. You're the editor. I was like, that's right. I'm the fucking editor, so no. Like, you, you Dude, is that something we can do? Can we just demand to write articles on random websites? I mean, Do we have he, this he power? Thinks so. He thinks so. <laughs> I did not know we wielded this power as journalists. No, it, just, it doesn't work, man. And, and Captain Kuhn and his, his racially ridiculous people are like, come on, man. Being critical of a black father is ridiculous. There's yeah. so many other things you can be critical of about, the, of, about our culture if you really wanted to. But y'all ridiculous. Sit the fuck down. Yeah, it's getting to the point where he's... I don't even know. Because the question would be, okay, let's stop giving Whitlock attention. Let's stop supporting Whitlock. But we don't support him. Like, we're not his base. So, no. so to a point, we are powerless to stop his dumbass antics. One day on Twitter, I said, yo, when I see you, it's fade on sight. Like, I don't care what publications we're working for. Like, my man, just know, it's fade on sight. Like, I don't like you. And I think he blocked me. I don't know. Reported me as spam or some shit. But it's like, it's real. I I can't look that man in the face and be like, yo, you, I can't call him a man. That guy. Like, you're, you're not even a man to me. But we can't do anything about it because we, we're not the people who put food on his table. Which is so fucking crazy to me. Like yeah. he, he's going for such a, a different, uh, I, I don't know. Traitor is a great word. So seeing that, being on Twitter, glad you roasted his ass. Um, everyone else I can kind of expect it from. Like I, I mean, I was a huge Colin Cowherd guy. Uh, it's why I started doing radio when I first started. 
it, it was like why I got into sports media and journalism in general is because I always enjoy Cowherd and all this stuff. But even he's getting hard to listen to. Like people now, like it feels like we're in a culture of you just have to have a take. Like the loudest, dumbest take wins. And this is coming from me. I have a lot of hot takes. But I like my takes. I believe my wild shit. Like they're, it has to be to the point where they're just saying the loudest, dumbest thing. You're like, ah, I win. They're going to talk about me. And I just can't do it. It's, it's, I don't know. It, it's bringing shame to the name of good hot takes. I feel insulted as a person who, who lets loose a bevy of genius hot takes. I feel like they're coming from my culture. And, and that's just bad, man. I can't, I can't do it. So yeah, Whitlock well, and I'm glad Charlemagne flamed his ass too, even though the fat jokes are hit or miss, but whatever. It's all fair game. I mean, so my bigger issue with a lot of this stuff is, and not for Jason Whitlock, because it's, it's an even bigger issue with him. The Colin Cowherds, the Skip Baylesses, the guys who are critical of LeBron James, because he's not being LeVar Brawl. He's being LeBron James. Yeah. And who are critical, they, these are white people trying to tell our stories and how who we are and how we're supposed to act and who we're supposed to be. I can't, y'all got to sit on the sidelines when, when it's us, right? Like, I'm so sick of non-people of color trying to tell people of color how they should act or how they should react or how they should be or how we should celebrate. They don't, they don't have a clue of what it took for us to get here. They, they think they do. But it's the reason why in combat sports, why um, a lot of the white journalists, you know, they're not bad people. But it's the reason why they get lazy and resort to the same story when it comes to fighters. Came from the hood, fought his way out the ghetto. Here he is today. It's, yeah. not, it's not our story. It's not all our story. Every, every black fighter didn't fight because he had to fight his way out the ghetto. It's not the case. We all have different stories. But once you color us with that same brush and you tell us what we're supposed to be or who we're supposed to be, you know, like, Javante Davis has a tragic story, right, in terms of watching a lot of his friends get shot and killed and, or just being murdered. And his trainer, his son was murdered. And it was like, though there's so many layers to that story and how, and how trauma affects our community <coughs> and, and how we react to trauma because, you know, a person such as myself, I'm overly invested in my daughter because of what happened in my childhood being a black man. So how I celebrate how my daughter uh, succeeds in life is none of your fucking business. It ultimately, at the end of the day, because you really have no idea what I went through to get here. And you can't tell my story in a box. So when I listen to Cowherd talk about, talk about what LeBron James should do, like, you don't really know what LeBron James dealt with to get here because... LeBron James always talked about his mother. Yep. You know what I'm saying? So Which Whitlock he, referenced. And you told your mother, like, he brought up probably the two or three things that should just get you an ass whooping off site. Talked about his kids, his mother, and him as a man. Yeah, like, you don't do that. And it's like, maybe Whitlock grew up in a two-parent home, right? But that doesn't, that's not the case for all of us. That's not, and, and again, so our trauma is different. And how we deal with our trauma is different. And how we celebrate our successes in life is different. So it's when you see a black player hitting a home run and being enthusiastic. Or when you see a black player picking off a pass and running and taking it to the yard for the end zone. It's not just scoring six points for your team. It's the road to get to that point that means so much to us. So when you tell us how we're supposed to celebrate overcoming adversity, no matter what it is, because 
even if you do come from a two-parent home, you may have dealt with something else. Like there could have been, you know, abuse or domestic issues or whatever the fuck it is. Being black is hard enough. I don't need you white motherfuckers telling me how to celebrate my blackness. Relax. Yeah. Fall back. Let us tell our own stories. But that's why it's important for those that listen to this podcast and are because I, 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 I see you guys on Twitter that say that we inspired y'all to try to do something like a podcast or a show or to write. It's important to have your voices because we can't keep letting people that are not of color tell our stories or tell us how to act. We need to be sitting at that desk that cowherds at. We need to be sitting at that desk pushing Whitlock's fat ass out the way. <laughs> That'd take a lot of manpower. It might take a lot of manpower. <laughs> that's where we're supposed to be because we can't just be the players in the game. We got to own the game. We got to be the managers of the game and we have to be able to tell our stories because the history books aren't going to be kind to us. If we keep allowing other people to tell our stories. Work. I mean, that's the, the best way to say it, man. Like it's and it's infuriating, like seeing it and seeing the people who, you know, more often than not get the platform to tell our stories. And it's, it's not us. At this point, Whitlock isn't us. So, yeah, he we got to take that spot and. Hopefully sooner the better. Um, let's talk about something else that's not Jason Wetlock's punk ass. Um, music. We haven't talked music in a while, Dre. Yeah. I feel I feel like we've kind of, you know, gotten off beat with our music tapes. Um, this isn't necessarily positive, but Chance the Rapper dropped an album. Mm. You, you were opinionated. I will tell my opinion first. So I got in the car on Friday. I went. I was excited to listen to this album. He didn't really put out anything beforehand. So, I mean, it might have been like one song dropped before the actual album did. So I didn't know what to expect from it. I start playing the album. I make it through about four or five songs. I look up and I go, what is this shit? I play one more song, make sure I'm not going crazy. That shit sucks. Then I see everyone, shout out to the timeline. Everyone's saying, yo, YBN Cordae's album is so good. So good. Oh, this is a great album. This kid got it. I was like, you know what? Usually I don't do, you know, kids with the stupid letters and their names and everything. But I was like, you know what? I'm going to give this a chance. Everybody can't be wrong. Let me not just judge this kid. I listen to that. I get two songs in. The third song is a song featuring Chance the Rapper. That one song is better than anything I've heard on Chance's album. Then I'm like, okay, let me keep listening. There's not a bad track on the YBN Cordae album. And I'm just like, damn, this kid is really good. I go back. I'm like, let me give Chance another try. And I start with the second half of the album because I wasn't listening to the trash yet I heard already. That sucks. I couldn't pick more than two songs that are decent on the Chance album. How the hell did this go so wrong? All right. <laughs> so... Which we'll talk about later. I was in Texas for the Ramirez hooker fight. And my Friday night, uh, well, Thursday night, um, I knew YBN's album was coming out. And I've talked about him extensively on this podcast in the past. I think the kid's incredible. I had been really looking forward to that album. So that came out first because Chance's album didn't come out Thursday night at midnight like it was supposed to. It came out later on Friday. YBN's album dropped. I listened to it. Like, this is amazing. This is dope. This kid is incredible. He's a great storyteller. He's, he's, everything's really impressive about this project. I was listening to another album that I can't talk about on the show until for another couple weeks. And that was really, really good as well. So I'm like, oh, man, two great albums. No chance the album. Oh, well. 
So Friday is the way in. Chances album drops. So I'm like, I need to listen to this because the way, like, I have two different tests. I have my headphones test. I have my car test. I'm in Texas, can't listen to the car. So all I can do is my headphones. So I wait until Friday night, start playing the album. And like four or five songs into it, I'm like, I want to listen to YBN's album. And I went back. Same thing happened on Saturday. Started listening to Champ's album. <laughs> Got about, about five, six songs in the album. And I was like, eh, I don't want to listen to this anymore. Went back to YBN's album. So I finally listened to the thing in its entirety on my flight back. It made my flight miserable. <laughs> because there hasn't been more anticipation. Like, this is so weird that I'm about to say this. Because Coloring Book was an album. There is no reason why the Coloring Book should be referred to as a mixtape. That's stupid. But since Chance wanted to do that, and now he's calling this thing his debut album, we're going to call it his debut album. I haven't heard an album that had this much hype around it as a debut and become so incredibly corny since Cannabis' debut. I can't think of another album that I was waiting for. The, the, the rapper who was behind it was killing it on the mixtape scene, because that's what Cannabis was doing at the time in 97, 98, absolutely destroying the mixtape scene. And everybody was like, yo, can't wait for this album to drop because these bars are going to be incredible. And then can I bust the album drop? And it was fucking terrible. And it was corny. <laughs> and it was ridiculous. And it was sad. And somebody said the other day, but it went gold. Everything went gold in the 90s, guys. It was like so, super poppy, right? It, it, it was just cheesy. Yeah, the I remember content, that. That shit was horrible. The, like the content was corny. Like you soon realize that Cannabis was like a one-verse dude. And when it came to constructing a song, he just wasn't able to do it. Chance, on the other hand, is a different case. Chance proved on acid rap that he can construct the song. Chance proved on Coloring Book, he can construct the song. But my problem with this album is it was like he was literally trying to make a song for commercial needs. Like he was like, oh, I want to make a commercial for Massengill. And he like made a douche song. Like everything was corny as hell on this album. Like the lines were terrible. I don't need you God because I all I need is you God. Like it was, so, it's so incredibly contrived the bars are terrible the production on the album feels like something that it was like i want to make a song like this instead of saying i want to make a song it was trying to emulate something that was out there already this this album is a catastrophe and i tried like after the the, the third time i listened to it I, like i listened to this thing three times and i was like man is it me and then i started like because i usually what i don't do is i don't start prowling social media to get opinions on albums until i listen to this shit myself so finally I got done listening to it and somebody said, this sounds like a soccer mom's album before she goes to a parent-teacher conference. I was like, all right, nail Like, I, I'm not wrong. This thing is corny. <laughs> and, and, for and, a parent-teacher so, conference, though? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. But see, like, the, the other thing is there were people out there that were saying, um, well, you know, he's saying something positive. Why are you mad at him saying something positive? Dog, this, I don't care. Like, you can make a song about shooting people in the face or you can make a song about loving your wife. Corny. Both of those can be done corny. Or they can be done very good. Chance did the corny route. Like he talks about positive things. I love my wife. I love God. I love gospel. I love Jesus. I love love. I love everything. But it's so corny. It's just so painful to listen to. A rapper with that much talent. Feeling like a, an android that was built to just make corny music. I don't even think that's Chance Rapper anymore. I think it's a doppelganger. <laughs> Someone has swooped through and stolen Chance and replaced him. 
Yeah. It's Illuminati talk right there, Dre. I like it. <laughs> nah, yeah, man. The, that one was bad, though. Yeah, and this is his first bad project. And he needs to just get away. Get away from the famous friends. Get away from the television commercials. Get away from Kanye. Just get away. Go somewhere. Find what inspired him before. Well, so, so here's the issue. And I liken this to the Nas issue. Like, for a lot of people, before you make it, you put your everything into your debut album because you don't know if you're going to get another shot. And the stories that you tell, like a lot of people, they're able to tell all their stories on their debut album. And then they just run out of shit to talk about because life is good. Like, a lot of people's art is better through pain, unfortunately, or intoxication, drugs. Whatever, whatever the case may be, some people are just more creative that way. Some people are just not creative sober. Some people are not creative in a happy place. Chance seems like one of those people. The better life has gotten, the worse his music has gotten. So it's like in the like the same thing with Nas. Nas is running down pissy stairwells and he makes Illmatic. And then once he gets a little taste of fortune and fame, he becomes Nas Escobar and starts to drift slowly into this corny chasm of bullshit and, and like materialism and, and nonsense. He can't figure out who he is anymore. Like if you listen to that Lost Tapes album, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners on this, on this podcast have, you will find a guy who is like, he's still talented, but he's, he, he's, not, he's not comfortable with who he is anymore. So like Jay-Z was always about getting rich. And now he's turned getting rich into being an activist and all these other things. So he's comfortable in who he is. Chance is now successful and he loves God, but he's not able to turn that into good music. But it was Trap. good music before. Like, I, I just, just don't. I'm just saying, I don't think, like, when, once you reach that level of success, like, once your, your day-to-day isn't, I wake up in the morning, I roll over and I write some raps, I might smoke some weed, I might hang out with the homies, my day is done. Now your day is, I wake up, I got to meet with my managers, my financial advisors, my wife, I got to do a commercial for Doritos. When do I have time to really write about the rough shit that's going on in my life? Because life ain't rough no more. It ain't. So now that it's not rough, I like I knew it was over. The more like I, I, I tweeted this, I knew it was over when Chance did the song with DJ Khaled and rapped the alphabet to DJ Khaled's son. I knew it was <laughs> like right there. The fact that he was able to do it, not the fact that he did it, the fact that he was able to go, all right, Khaled, I'll do this for you. Ah! And then he wrote that verse. I was like, it's over. It's over. Acid rap, Chance to rap, would have been like, get the fuck out of here with that shit. I'm not rapping the alphabet. Yeah, that was when he lost the juice right there. No, it's it, and I'm not mad at him being happy. I'm not mad at him having a child because I have a daughter. It changes your life. But some people just clearly are not creative anymore without hardship or intoxication. And he happens to be one of them. Maybe he'll prove me wrong, wrong later. But this album is duty. Yeah, this is a drastic decline. Like uh, I, I don't know, man. Even Kanye it took him like a decade to fall off. Like I mean, this is this is one album. Kanye, you know, Kanye's a producer first and a rapper third. I don't know. I wouldn't even call him a rapper second. Like Kanye was a producer first, so he can get other people to write those bars. Chance is a rapper first. It's in his fucking name. <laughs> it is. You can't escape it. You put it in the name. Uh, what are your thoughts on the YBN Cordae album? We no, touched, I, you touched on it like real quick for a second, but um, I mean, I didn't know much of the kid beforehand, and I really liked it. Look, when I when I first saw like what happened for me is I saw YBN's name around a lot, and then um, I decided to give it a listen because 
he was one of those guys like I looked at him and I was like, oh no, not another one of these guys. Yeah, I thought the same. So I I actually listened to a freestyle on, I can't remember which, and I was like, man, this is dope. So I started digging through his catalog because that's what I do. Like once I I latch onto an artist, I dig through everything that they've ever done. And he he went by another name in the past and I was like, yo, this kid's really dope. And then his guest appearances would be dope. And then he'd show up places to be dope. And so I would so now I was just like, well, he's got to deliver on this album. And I mean, this album is like, there's like a jazzy element to it. There's a great story, storytelling element. The song's like broke as fuck. That's amazing. There's a song, that song Family Business, where he just talks about dealing with your family issues, but your family's still being supported of you, even though your family's falling apart. Yeah. It's amazing. Like the kid, he's got it. He, I mean, he he's he's here. I don't know how many people, I don't know what the sales are gonna be. But just like when I talked about it doesn't even matter. Yeah. Just like like when I talked about Saba's album and how incredible that was, this album is up there, man. And Saba still has one of my most favorite projects in terms of storytelling and weaving a narrative together. But YBN put together arguably one of the best albums of the year. Top five for sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I've gone through it three, four times. It's been hard for me to not play it when I'm in the car. Like it, it's that good. It makes me go back, and I can't wait to dig through some of like his old freestyles, and um, yeah, just get to know more about him as an artist. I saw an interview. Uh, I think I retweeted on Twitter where he's talking about Nas and how yeah. he was like four years old and got influenced by Nas. I can and could spit every bar of it, and how influential Nas and Jay Z were to him. And I was like, no, this kid is smart, and he has an appreciation for hip hop, yeah, which a lot of the young kids don't. He won me over right there already. I was yeah, like, that, he, you have the appreciation to go back and find these things. Yeah, he's on his game. And that interview was with Rob Markman, good friend of mine, um, over at Genius. Rob does incredible interviews. His his interview with Big Crit is also amazing. You guys get a chance to check it out. But yeah, and, and it's weird because I hate I Can. I hate that song. Oh yeah, it wasn't my favorite not song. Like I get it. It's one of those things where I hate it because it's corny, but I get it. Yeah. Like I get its purpose and I get how it can it touches certain people. But man, I can't listen to that goddamn song. Woo. It was so much better a cappella with YBN Corday spitting. Yeah, it was. without the the poppy ass chorus and the stupid beat, the lyrics <laughs> the lyrics hold up. I was like, yeah, he was spitting some truth. Yeah, he and was some history, and uh, so I was like, all right, you know, it's, it's dope. So now I like the album and can't wait to hear more from from that kid. Um, but now it's time for us to talk combat sports. So we're gonna take a quick break. When we come back, Dre, you're gonna tell us about your trip to Dallas this past weekend, and then um, yeah, we're gonna break down everything between pro wrestling, UFC, boxing. Throw it all in. So you guys stay tuned. We'll be right back. What up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Corner Podcast. This week's episode of The Corner is brought to you by Casper Mattresses. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the cost. You know me and Andreas are always covering events, we're always writing articles, but when we do have time to sleep, we lay our head down on a nice, pillowy soft premium mattress from Casper Mattresses. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and going straight to you. No showrooms, no middleman. Everyone's seen those creepy guys trying to follow you around the department store. None of that anymore. You get your hands on a nice premium mattress by going straight to Casper Mattresses. Yeah, man. I mean, I, I got to get my rest. So Casper Mattresses is, is the goods. I'm telling you right now. So listen, 
You can get $50 off of any mattress purchased by visiting casper.com backslash the corner and entering the promo code the corner. That's one word, the corner. That's casper.com backslash the corner promo code T-H-E-C-O-R-N-E-R. Terms and conditions apply. Just that quick, we are back. And uh, Dre, before we jump into your boxing trip this weekend and some of uh, the good fights that we just saw, I wanted to actually start with pro wrestling because we always leave it to last. So I felt like, you know what, let's change it up on people. Make sure we get all our pro wrestling takes in. We ran short last week. We couldn't talk about it all. So I was like, all right, cool. Perfect opportunity. Um, Let's start with WWE. WWE is making changes. They are? Do you not agree? I I watched Raw and SmackDown this week. Yeah, what what changes did you see there were? I saw that there's no longer... One of the biggest things I've seen so far, which I mean, I guess is not like huge to some people, but to me, it matters a lot. And it's made it enjoyable enough for me to watch it. Is they're not just repeating the same stupid fight every week. So it's not like 50 50 booking through and through where we're going to see Ricochet versus, uh, I don't know, pick someone. So Ricochet versus AJ Styles with Ricochet losing. And they just did this like three weeks ago, uh, four weeks ago, where Ricochet wins, then the next week AJ Styles wins, then the next week. It's a DQ, and then boom, they wrestle at a pay-per-view. It's like, no, cool. They can go off and wrestle other people, but keep their feud intact at the same time. So we see the club wrestling for the tag titles, not beating the champions, beating the third team in the Usos. So now they still got beef with the champions, and that makes a a feud with a legit storyline. Oh, but then the next day they come and they feud with the New Day because they both have all the titles. That's great. I like that. Fresh mm. matchups make sense. It's like, yo, you got three titles. I got three titles. Let's get busy. Like, it's it's auxiliary feuds to have something fresh every week, but their main feuds are still there. Yeah, I don't see it. Um, <laughs> you just, you better better people have belts. So the talent with belts are better. I, some of the feuds are still stupid. Like, I don't need an Italian in the title picture. For Becky Lynch, uh, they just killing Becky with nonsensical feuds. But at least Ember Moon and Bailey, they're trying to build a story around. Um, Ember Moon is showing out in the ring, so that's good. It'll make for a good match between her and Bailey. Uh, I don't know why Alexa Bliss is over there now, except I guess they just got to do something different. Um, so Alexa, or so Ember and Bailey just don't wrestle each other every week. So that's in there. Um, Ms. Dolph Ziggler is in there, which they built off Raw, but then Ziggler's having fresh matchups on SmackDown. He, it was just him, Finn Balor, him, someone else the last week. So the, him and Finn match also had an appearance by The Fiend. So that ties into The Fiend and Finn's beef, but they don't got to wrestle each other. So it, it's like they're tying in all these different feuds together and creating fresh matchups with them. I think that's a positive. Um, like I've said a billion times, call me when this is still happening two months from now. <laughs> this this is like, like okay, it's a change. Though. It made it watchable. Uh, they, they always do a, a show a change for one show. I need consistency. That's all I ask for. They don't Sorry. do consistency very well. Like for instance, 
Ricochet is in that gauntlet match on, match on Raw this week. Yeah. Was there any doubt that he wasn't going to win that match? No. Any? No, no. No. But they no. just made him earn the rematch. And give you, just to give you fresh matchups in between. No, I'm just saying, like, but for what? Like, he just lost the title to AJ Styles. Shouldn't he get a rematch? Meanwhile, Randy Orton didn't have to do shit to get his title shot. Why has Ricochet got a wrestler in a gauntlet match? That uh-huh. shit doesn't make any sense to me. But you didn't that, enjoy him versus Cien Almas down the stretch? I mean, I would enjoy it if I didn't know who was going to win. Like, it's these definitive... Like, I've always had a problem with the length of Raw and SmackDown because you got to kind of burn through wrestlers and, and put together matches like Mysterio and Cien Almas, and then they, they don't matter. Or, or Cesaro and Ricochet. Yeah. And they just kind of happen, and then it's just like, all right, that's cool. And that's, and that's good because everything doesn't necessarily have to have a story. But I just try to figure out where they're going with a lot of things. So when I know who's going to win, as soon as I saw Ricochet, I was like, oh, he's going to win. So I, I didn't care anymore. The triple threat, that was cool. The, t- the tag team triple threat, that's fine. But Which gave us a new champion, crowning new champs on television. And it was surprising. Well, yeah. And it, but now I'm like, okay, so what are you doing with the revival? And again, like, they didn't I just get to- pinned. I need consistency is all I ask for because if you want to make these changes and they're, again they weren't bad changes like Raw wasn't Raw wasn't bad no. it wasn't it wasn't great either I didn't necessarily need a twenty five minute beatdown of Seth Rollins but I get why they did <laughs> yeah. um, so blood yeah I, you know you go to SmackDown like the Who Done It Who tried to crush Roman Reigns under a bunch of ladders and shit I didn't really need it with like six camera cuts but okay fine whatever I mean, that's that's classic Eric Bischoff. You might not be doing day to day, but man, that that's classic WCW who done it. Yeah, it's just I just need consistency. I just need things to matter. That's that's it. So maybe you know I'll give them the benefit of the doubt, and maybe they're trying to find a way to reset. And maybe some after SummerSlam is the reset. Maybe they can reset a lot of these feuds. Um, Do you like the talent share now? And gone is the farce of a brand split. Or should no, they I go don't. back and just say, you know what? No, we're going to have a brand split. They need to have a brand split. Like, what's the point of having two shows and all this talent if some, like, one guy is going to headline two shows? Like, Roman, like when Roman Reigns was, main, I think it was last week, main eventing Raw and SmackDown, that does nobody any favors. Yeah. So, so I think, and then why have Heyman on one show and Bischoff on the other if they're not going to have different talent to deal with? Because that means that now Bischoff has to piggyback off of what Heyman's doing rather than operate back when Heyman had the SmackDown 6. Yep. They had their own show. So you could say, oh, man, I'm watching SmackDown because it's better than Raw. Now they're just the same show. And they don't even acknowledge the wild card rule anymore. It looks like it never existed. No, they ditched that shit because it was a stupid name. It was dumb. <laughs> so I, I, I still think with so much talent, you need to do a brand split and you need to keep. Because now, because, like, for instance, watching Raw, I saw like seven titles on TV in an hour. Yeah. I saw the tag titles. I saw the Universal title, I saw the 24-7 title, I saw the U.S. title, I saw the IC title, and I saw the NXT tag titles in one hour. <laughs> it's true. There's a lot of That's, belts. I don't need all them belts on one show. Split them up. Make the, the belts mean something. What they should have always done, which they never will do, wrestle, not even WrestleMania, but maybe, I don't know, maybe a seasonal thing. I don't know what it could be. But the champion of Raw and the champion of SmackDown should end up feuding at WrestleMania in a winner-takes-all match. Yeah. Or Survivor like, Series. Like, one year, just be like, yo, Survivor Series this year. Because they do 
uh, champ versus champ for the format. So do we yeah, know the I'm, winner of all of these is going to take the belt? Yeah, like I want the winner to take all the belts and like really defend them on both shows. Like you could be the number one contender of one title. I don't even necessarily need a universal title and a WWE title. I like to have one title, and that champion floats between shows. But he's the only person that can float between shows. I don't need everybody on the roster going back and forth. Yeah. Like, make the titles mean something. There's too many of them. So, Raw and SmackDown, while better, I still think that they have a, they have a talent issue. And I believe that when things are consistent, then I'll buy into this. Right now, I'm not buying into this shit. Ah, pessimistic, Dre. Yeah. Let's talk about something good. Something that I know you like. New Japan, G1, over halfway through now. It's been exciting. I've enjoyed everyone. I started watching yesterday's, earlier today. I didn't finish it. Um, man, it's, it's good. I just wanted to touch base and say, who right now is your surprise of the tournament? Who's your Lance surprise stand-up? Lance Archer, by a country mile. There's... I when I saw Lance Archer was in G one, I was like, "Kid, I don't. Why is he here?" And now he's just—they've he, booked him brilliantly. Like him beating Osprey on night one, him having—he's had like fantastic matches. Him taking um, uh, two Kamigoyes from Kota Ibushi, like when he took the Kamigoye and it just was still up. Oh and the yeah. Crowd, and the crowd reacted to it, and then Ibushi's eyes—he had to give him another Kamigoye to put him down. Like, that's great storytelling from a guy who you know is not going to win the tournament, but you are actually building to be a force. Did you that's see him versus Okada yet? When is that tonight? Is that yeah, that was last night. No, I'm actually, literally, I'm watching. Last night? Two nights ago. Whatever. Two. I'm watching Osprey versus Zack Sabre Jr. right now. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, no, when you see Archer versus Okada, that shit's going to be crazy. It, it's just, like, nobody expected him to be what he was. Um, and it's interesting because on the flip side of this, I'm kind of disappointed in how Jeff Cobb has been booked. I, I don't think they've really exploited his strengths as they should, but they made Lance Archer look like, like a beast. I, he's the biggest surprise of the tournament. Yeah, Archer, and he, man, he can go. Some of his moves, the flips, he does a lot of apron spots. Uh, no, yeah, it's, it's crazy. I, I would agree with that, except, and I don't know why it's necessarily a surprise, but every year I kind of get surprised. Ishii is probably Ishii's my my surprise standout. Yeah, not surprising for me. But See, I, it's, I get. it's surprising because he did it again. So maybe it's not like how long can he continue to do this? Where he is the ultimate jack of all trades. No. Everyone you put him against, he blends perfectly to their style, and then still keeps his crazy ass. I'm a headbutt you and randomly Hulk up in the middle of this match spot. But everything else is so fluid. Like, he worked great against Moxley. But then he works great against Zack Sabre Jr. Or an I mean, Osprey. Or any of these. Like, his style works so well with everyone. He, listen, I, I said it. Like, he's one of my favorite wrestlers, period. I say it every year. Ishii is the king of the babyface fire. Like, there's <laughs> nobody else that, that can no-sell shit and get people hyped like Ishii. There's nobody. He's unbelievable at what he does. The Moxie match was my favorite match of the tournament until Osprey and Okada. Um, and it was simply because, like, Ishii, dude, he did, what did he do? Like a frog splash onto a table on the outside? Like, dude. Yeah. He's, he's incredible to watch. And, like, his juice, like, he makes anybody look good. He's, he's stiff as hell. 
he's incredible. So he, he didn't surprise me because Ishii has one of the best matches in G1 every year. Every year. And anybody, there's an there's a Ishii Kenny Omega match from last year, maybe. That was amazing. But there was also a Ishii versus Okada match where there's a spot where Okada does that flying elbow and, you know, he does that Rainmaker spot and they pull the camera wide. Mm-hmm. But when it, hap- it happens, like, in the beginning of the match, they start the match up on fire. And Okada hits it immediately and goes for the Rainmaker pose. And Ishii kills him with a clothesline when the camera's pulling back. It is such a remarkable <laughs> spot because you don't expect it to come. But Ishii can start these matches off on fire and you can close them on fire. He's one of the best wrestlers in the business. And strangely enough, I don't think because of the way Japan tells their stories, I don't think he'll ever win a G1. He's just not built to win a G1. He's built to give you a ton of great matches. But what a story it would be if one day he wins G1. I just want to, like, he doesn't even have to win G1. Just let him win the belt. If, if he does, listen, if he wins G1 and then drops the briefcase, I'm even okay with that. He's, he's just, a, he's an extraordinary talent. He's, he's probably the most underrated wrestler in all of pro wrestling. Yeah, I'll say it every year. He is, yep. like, him and Katsuyori Shibata were, like, two of my favorites. Now, Shibata can't wrestle anymore, obviously. But Ishii just, obviously, it speaks to the style that I like as well. <laughs> I like guys like this. Yeah. I like guys that lay it in there. And he's just, he's, he's, he's not huge. He just, he meshes with any style. He doesn't have a bad match. He's Who, the man. Who's your MVP so far? Will Ospreay. Listen, if there's any doubt that Will Ospreay is wrestler of the year, you guys are ridiculous. There's no, it's, it's dude, he wrestled Shingo in this, in New Japan, uh, the best of super juniors. Yep. In a match that I still think is the match of the year. And it's been two months, and he wrestled Okada in another match. I'm like, that could be match of the year. Two months he did this. This man is unbelievable. Then the Kota Ibushi match? Dude, there's nobody better than Will Ospreay right now. Right now is the best wrestler on the planet. Will Ospreay, my MVP so far this year, MVP of this tournament is Okada. This is the best I've seen Okada in a year and a half. Like, he, he was, and no fault of, like, as we can see in this tournament, Jay White has gotten lapped by the field. Like, Jay, he, he went from champion to, yo, this guy shouldn't get a point in G1. Uh, so, I mean, that's neither. So, he had that feud. He had Kenny on the way out, which was still a good match. And I, I think he had a Tanahashi match in there. Um earlier this year. But outside of that, he's kind of just been on cruise control. Okada's been lighting it up in this tournament for me. And this is the Okada that we all know. The top five in the world, Okada. And I think I think it's going to come down to him on the last day. I, I think he might face... What does he face on the last day? I think it's him versus Kenta on the last day, maybe? No, he already wrestled. They opened. Yeah, no, they opened. I forgot who he wrestled on the last day. But I feel like it comes down to him on the last day. He's just been so damn good. Yeah, I mean, look, I think Okada's always been good. He's always been one of the best wrestlers in the world. Some people forget about him. He turned um, it back up. I just, I just look at it, Osprey, like, Okada, like, all right, Okada and Kenta was, was weird because it was a match that I was really looking forward to, mm-hmm. and I was slightly disappointed. Because not because it was a bad match, but it never really peaked. It was it was like on a on a scale of one to ten, it was like at an eight the entire match. And it never got past an eight. Osprey and Okada reached ten. 
Osprey and Kota Ibushi reach 10. Like, I mean, not Obushi. Like, I'm watching the Sacred Saber Jr. match. Like, it's, the things he's doing is incredible. I, oh, by the I, way, the next match is Okada and Lance Archer. Okay. So, it's just, I think Osprey is MVP because, I mean, the first match he had was with Lance Archer, and everybody was concerned. They were like, oh, this might suck. And it didn't. And he lost, and he looked good doing it. So, I'm not mad at the Okada choice. Um, but it, but it, this also speaks to how strong the tournament is because Kota Ibushi has been remarkable in this tournament. And he's almost been forgotten. And Moxley has been really good as well. I'm, I'm happy that I finally saw Moxley wrestle a non-DQ-style like, match. Like, yeah. he, he was so reliant on tables and bullshit, blah, blah. He wrestled a normalized match the other day. And it was really good. And I still really like him versus Juice Robinson. I thought that match was really good. I mean, he's it's like you look at this field of this tournament, and it, like a lot of people have had really good matches. What the hell happened um, to Naito? Why is he so buried? I I forgot that he's been losing this much. Well, well, see, that's the stories that they tell. Like if you pay, if, like if you go back a few years, maybe maybe last year, Tanahashi opened the tournament zero and three and ended up winning and ended up becoming champion. So there's stories that are being told, like Zack Saber Jr. throwing his temper tantrums because he can't fucking <laughs> win a match. Yeah. I, I love it. And like Naito is kind of like slipping through and then he, you know, he had that hard time with Moxley and like at this point of the tournament, Moxley's undefeated and Okada's undefeated. Could that be your final A block versus B block? Maybe. But New Japan does a great job of starting off guys hot hot, and then they cool off or some guys come on strong near the end and win on the, because that final night's always a bitch. Not before, but the A block final and the B block final, there's always like three matches that mean a lot. And keep you watching. They booked this thing really well. Um, so I'm interested to see how this whole thing plays out. But I think Osprey's been amazing. Abushi's been amazing. Ishii obviously has been amazing. As of right now, I feel like we're still going to find a way to get to uh, Abushi winning this thing. Wow. Yeah, I, w- I would have to go with you on that. Only because I just said it's up to who Akata. Okada wrestles on the last night, and he wrestles Kota Ibushi. Yeah. On the it's, last night. So, I mean, that's I didn't even know who he was going to wrestle. And I thought that'd be the match of the tournament, right? So, if that's Ibushi, I think Ibushi gets him. And then Moxley versus Juice on the last night. Juice probably beats him. I don't even know who comes out of the B block. It's tough, man. It's really This is a really interesting tournament. But that's why what makes New Japan so fun is that these t- tournaments, like, you know who's not going to win. You look at guys like Jeff Cobb, you're like, all right, we put him in there to have good matches. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But like, Yano gets some points. Yeah, but Yano's a spoiler. <laughs> like, he, he's here. Like, you know he's going to win a match. And he's going to fuck it up for somebody. Who's it going to be? That's, yeah. that's Yano's role. Like, Ishii's there to have great matches. He's not ever booked to win the tournament. So, you know, you wind it down to the guys like Osprey, Okada, uh, Ibushi, Naito, and now you have like Moxley lurking around, and nobody thinks he could possibly win this tournament. But, but never- he could. <laughs> he could. Like, it, who knows what his deal is, right? Like, I, I don't know. Would AEW let him ride out and do Wrestle Kingdom? We don't. We don't. We know. don't know. We don't know. So that's what makes it so good, man. And uh, now it's been great. The tournament wraps up August tenth and eleventh. With the finals between the two block winners going down on the 12th. So, what? We are 10 days away. Well, think about this. 
That's the same weekend as TakeOver and SummerSlam. Why is SummerSlam so early? I don't know. It felt like it. I don't yeah, know. That's crazy. But last year was like the last week of August. Now it's super early. Like this is about to be an insane weekend of wrestling coming up. A block finals, B block finals, takeover, SummerSlam, G1 finals. Oh. All one weekend. Yeah. That's that's a pack two days, three days. I know we're talking about a lot next week, so buckle up, guys. This is gonna be a lot of fucking pro wrestling talk. Oh yeah, man. So that's that's great. Uh let's talk about boxing though. And you were just in Dallas for the Jose Ramirez Mo Hooker fight. Yeah. And how was that? Like, just tell us one, you went and ate some bomb food, you said. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I did. This um, got to be the highlight of the story. Like, yeah, we can't pass up on the food. Well, I mean, listen, I've been to Dallas a couple of times, um, most recently for Errol Spence, Mikey Garcia fight. But this fight. Um, was a little bit more low-key, so it was busy from a production side because I worked for The Zone, so we had a bunch of other stuff to do. But one of our producers um, is from Texas, and she's a black girl from Texas. And she su- suggested to a bunch of, like, a lot of the, the Zone staff is, like, from the U.K. and white. And she, her name's LaShonda. LaShonda was like, there's a place called Rudy's Chicken. The chicken will change your life. So... It was so fun because the shit was in like Oak Cliffs, which is the hood of Dallas. Oh, it was so fun taking a bunch of white people there. Um, we stood in line, uh, and uh, you know, there's it, it, we were we were in the hood of Dallas, and the chicken was I I, I couldn't believe it. The chicken was absolutely life changing. It changed my life. <laughs> like when people say stuff like that to me, when they tell me that food is life changing, I'm already skeptical because I'm like, you couldn't have really had anything to be life-changing but rudy's chicken it was in a place that looked like an old ass sonic um that they they just re-overhauled into a chicken shack and they like they charge you for ketchup in this bitch it was like 10 cents to get ketchup (laughs) they charge you a quarter for bread but the chicken if anybody lives in dallas the chicken oh my lord that chicken was legit we're gonna get a bunch of texas people saying what took you so long to eat that shit because it's in the hood. It's in Oak Cliffs. The shit is in the hood. I would have never found it. Like, we had an Uber out there. And, it, like, man, it was legit. I also went to a Rodeo Goat. I had a brisket burger. That was amazing. Um, and I went to, like, we went to an upscale restaurant. I went to dinner with, like, Eddie Hearn and Lou DiBella, Mike Coppinger. We all went to, like, a high-class dinner with, like, fine wine, steak. That was great. But Rudy's Chicken was my highlight. <laughs> Over was- the fine diner. And that's what I like to hear. So that was that was the weekend food, but then we have the weekend to fight. And I'll preface it with this little story before I get into how this week shook out. Back in like '08, uh, when I worked at Hip Hop DX, uh, I met this guy named Aaron Hyken. Aaron was the manager of a rapper named Fashan, who was getting ready to release the Boy Meets World album. So I heard in advance of it before it came out in 2009, and I was like, "This is amazing. We need to do something on this." Me and Aaron have remained friends for a long time. In 2013, Aaron introduced me to a man named Rick. The reason why he re- introduced me to Rick is because he knew I was working for Life and Times at the time, Jay-Z's website, and I was trying to find an NBA player to do a documentary on. Rick introduced me to a guy named Cody. Cody was really good friends with Paul George, who was going to his first All-Star game as a player on the team. Through that, I ended up shooting Paul George's first documentary, which he used for his CAA deal to get his 
to re-up his contract and for sponsoring deals. My documentary, which is fucking crazy. After that, later, Rick Merrigan introduced me to a fighter who just was in the 2012 Olympics named Jose Ramirez. He says, Jose Ramirez just got signed to top rank. They're not paying him a whole lot of attention, but I'm going to make this kid a star. Mind you, Rick has not really been in the boxing business. I said, all right, cool. I'm going to stay in touch with Rick because Rick took care of me with Cody for this Paul George thing. Aaron's a good friend of mine because of Fashawn. So we fast forward like to his eighth fight. Um, and at that time, Fashawn is working to do Tim Bradley's music for his third fight with Manny Pacquiao. Because of that, I ended up shooting Tim Bradley's documentary. And I ended up filming with Tim Bradley and Fashawn about the making of the song Champion. I flew Sway out to Vegas, and we did this whole backstage thing. I think I've talked about it before. Max Kellerman and Fashan are freestyling backstage, and there's no video of this that exists because Max wouldn't let us record it. So we've stayed in touch. Now we fast forward to 2019, and a few months ago, I get a call that Jose Ramirez is fighting Mo Hooker in a cross-promotional match because Hooker's on the zone and Ramirez is on top rank. And I found out how much he got paid, which is a lot of fucking money. So obviously this thing has all come full circle. So fight night happens. I see Rick. I see Jose. I see Aaron. I'm excited. But the thing is, because I work for the zone, we don't really want Mo Hooker to lose. Because it's a winner-take-all thing. It's like the, whoever wins takes both the belts back to their promotion. We already lost with Anthony Joshua losing the heavyweight title to a- Andy Ruiz. We can't necessarily lose, uh, have Hooker lose his titles to Ramirez. But those are my friends. So I want to see Rick win. He's, he's gone through a lot. If anybody knows Jose Ramirez, he's, I use the term super Mexican, and I mean this in all, all the most positive ways because Jose Ramirez fights for immigration. Jose Ramirez fights to raise money for the water crisis in, in California. Like, he is all about his culture and his community. And Rick Merrigan's fostered that relationship, and he sells out Fresno arenas every time. And this is the first time in a while that Jose Ramirez had to venture outside of California, and he's fighting in Hooker's backyard in Texas. So we fast forward to fight night. The arena's electric. They're asking me who to win, and I was like, dog, I'm kind of invested emotionally because Rick is my friend. And the fight happens. It ends up being a fight-of-the-year candidate until Ramirez knocks Hooker out in the sixth round, which none of us saw coming. This was a 50-50 fight in every, everybody's book. Yep. But it was a credible fight. Ramirez pulled off. It wasn't an upset, but him stopping Mo Hooker was. Um, I said to say this. That night, uh, we're leaving the arena. They're riding in a Mercedes truck. I'm riding with our matchroom and the zone team and Dan Raphael. We get back, and I'm with the zone crew. It's me. It's like Chris Mannix and Sergio Mora. It's our producer, Matt Miller. It's our pu- publicist, Greg Domino. We're having a few Dosekis. Jose walks through the door with Aaron and Rick. I look at him. I had to leave my crew. I had to celebrate with the homies. It's like 2 in the morning. Um, everybody's drinking, having tequila. Like, Jose's got his two titles. He's got his family with him. I had to defect. I had to leave the zone that <laughs> night. And I had to hang out with the homies. And, and we, you know, great. I mean, Aaron's been a great friend of mine. So it was, it was fun to see him elated. It was a long road for them to get this world title. Uh, but the problem was, is that about 2.33 in the morning, my flight leaves at 6. I don't know why I booked this shit, but that's what happened. I'm, I'm getting there. I've had a few to drink. Uh, Aaron's there, and Rick has gone off to, you know, rub shoulders with people in the Jose's. Just, and we're all kicking it in the hotel lobby. Nobody's in the room. We're out in the open. Aaron is like, 
Who wants Whataburger? You know I don't want Whataburger. <laughs> That's where you draw the line. You're never drunk enough to take Whataburger. I like it. So, <laughs> all right. So me and Rick are in agreement, and so is Jose. Whataburger's terrible. Like Jose is like, I don't think this shit is good. Like we had, like we're at fighter meetings, and me and Jose are having a side conversation about In and Out versus Whataburger. I don't know why this is a thing now, but it's a thing. <laughs> it's and like the, the Jamie Jose- Fox versus uh, Childish Gambino combo. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's become a thing. So, Aaron says I'm going to Whataburger. Aaron doesn't have a car. Aaron Ubers calls an Uber at three in the morning to go get 22 burgers from Whataburger. He was drunk. <laughs> and you know who ate a Whataburger? Not this guy. But Jose Ramirez ate a Whataburger that night. I went to the airport. I did not eat a Whataburger. I was not having that trash. I don't eat that or a White Castle. But it was just so legit to see the homies. White Castle is delicious. Bite your tongue. No, it's disgusting. And it's only good when you're drunk. But, and it's not even good when you're drunk because I can't stand it. But it was just like that whole week was electric to see like Ramirez you know, work his way to this title shot. Well, to unify, because now we're one step closer to having an undisputed champion at 140. Because now Regis Progray is getting ready to fight Josh Taylor to unify their titles. And the, the way it's supposed to be is if everybody expects Progray to win, it'll be Progray versus Ramirez for the undisputed title uh, probably early next year. Box is in a good place, man. And if those of you who didn't get a chance to watch it was on the zone, I'm not trying to promote the company, you should go out of your way to watch this fight. I know a lot of people watched Javante that weekend because Javante's a fucking star. I'm not mad at it. But if you wanted to see a better, more competitive fight, Hooker versus Ramirez was the way to go. Yeah, I mean, I watched both. Um, I watched the Javante fight live, and then I watched the um, Hooker fight the next day with my grandma. So, no, yeah, she agreed. She was like, man, this is just a better fight. She thought the, the whole lineup of fights were better. So yeah, even some yeah. of the undercard fights, like we sat there and listen, that's one thing about the zone. You guys televise every fucking fight. Yeah, we do. And exactly. my grandmother would watch all six hours of these fucking fights and call me and be like, Bobby, did you see that? Like, no, grandma, I did not watch the third fight of the night. I did not. But she'll sit there and watch the entire thing. So I was like, she's crazy. So we watched that and the fight was amazing. And like you said, it sets up for unification bouts, which are huge, um, undisputed contests, hopefully coming up soon. The tank fight, though, one, running through his opponent, great-looking knockout. The stoppage was correct. So that was a big win for Tank. And then you look at Tank's next opponent. There's only one choice, right? No. Who's, who's the one choice? You have, to, you have to solidify the rivalry. And Tevin Farmer was in action that same night. Yeah, that's not going to happen. It it matches up perfectly. Farmer like, fought the same night. Farmer didn't look that great. He looked okay. He looked Tank, like Tevin Farmer. Tank looked fun. great. That's the trash good. talking, the first name out of Tank's mouth, regardless of promotion, was Farmer. You got to make it happen. And they're there's belts involved. They're, they're not going to make it happen. There's no reason not to. You guys just did a co-promote it. Granted, you guys lost that belt. But, but no. We did, we did that with top, like we did a co-promotional with a top top rank for a unification fight. Andy Ruiz came on the radar because our initial opponent for Anthony Joshua fell through, which is Jarrell Miller. I don't make the fights. I'm just telling you that shit ain't happening anytime soon. Reason being, 
is Tank's next opponent is going to be Yurioka Gamboa. Gamboa fought on the undercard of the Devontae Davis fight. He fight the same weight class. Look Gamboa, good. Gamboa looked good. Gamboa's also not very dangerous anymore in terms of defensively. Tevin Farm is not a fun guy to watch. He wins fights, but he's very Floyd Mayweather with his style. He plucks, he, he's a lot of head movement, he's, and not a lot of power at all. No, like Lara, like Floyd. Yeah, like, like, even, he, like Floyd could at least sting you. Like, Tevin Farmer has six knockouts in his career. Yeah. He's not a bad fighter. He's just, if you're looking for action, you're not going to get it from Tevin But Farmer. he can frustrate Tank. Oh, I agree. I agree 100%. I agree that fight should happen. It's just not. <laughs> it, it, they're going to go with, they're like, probably going to go with Gervonta and Uriacos Gambo in the next fight. Um, Farmer wants to, they both want the fight. I think it'll happen, but I think the, the bigger issue right now is, even though Tevin Farmer's been active, I, he, need, like, he has to step up in competition. He has to. And, he has, and not only does he have to step up, he needs to look incredible. He looks good. He doesn't take a lot of risk. I understand that. He's getting paid well to do what he's doing. But you're not going to convince PBC to cross the street if, you, if you're just nudging by with decisions. So Floyd is bugging when he said this is going to be Tank's first pay-per-view. Against who? Against Farmer. He said if we can make that Farmer fight work, this will be Tank's first pay-per-view. This way he said in the post-fight. I mean, look, Javante, the thing about Javante, he did about, about a little over half a million views. He's a star. There's mm-hmm. no denying that. He's got the it factor. The Tevin Farmer fight will be fine for a pay-per-view, but this is splitting the baby. And business-wise, and I'm not speaking on behalf of either promotional side, the business doesn't make sense to do that on pay-per-view where, there, where you could do like a Gamboa versus, I mean not Gamboa, a Tank versus Santa Cruz on pay-per-view. Because Tank ain't sitting around 130 much longer. No, but if, I think if, that, if he gets that belt against Farmer, you have to let him fight. Like uh, Santa Cruz after that, Santa Cruz heightens it. Like you put that in LA, that's huge. Or I don't know if you want to go for the gusto, you can just rush him into the Lomachenko fight and go back to back pay per views. But but see now you're crossing promotional lines, and therein lies the problem with boxing. Like there is no scenario where PBC does not believe Javante Davis is the A side. Done. If he fights Lomachenko, they're like he's the A side. Yeah. And that's going to be the problem. Yeah. Okay. And, and PBC, and, and not, they're, they're not necessarily wrong in how they're handling business. They're just very self-contained in how they do it. Like, they're in no rush to fight Terrence Crawford, to have anybody fight Terrence Crawford. They want to keep all the money in-house. And it makes sense, because why wouldn't you? Why would you split 50-50 when you go 100%? Yeah. So if Javante has options, like Gamboa, he's not going to go cross the street to fight Farmer where you have to negotiate who's broadcasting the fight because on our side on the, on the zone side i don't know if we're going to be like comfortable putting tevin on another person's platform right now unless they pay out a lot of money which is what we had to do for the ramirez fight yeah so i'm not necessarily sure that pbc is interested in paying farmer because when i interview farmer i don't know if anybody saw the interview farmer says i know my value i'm not taking a penny less than what i think i deserve that right there is an indication that he ain't crossing the street unless he feels like he's getting a 50 50 fight whether oh. he deserves that or not is going to be the problem. Gamboa is just taking a fight. Yeah. He ain't talking about them 50-50. They, they would have to pay. They couldn't tell Farmer what Tank made then. Because you got to give Farmer fair market value for him, but give Tank a lot more then. Oh, there, there's no way in hell that Farmer's not going to find out what Tank is making. He'll find out. 
He's not. He's he, he, he can't get fifty fifty. That's just that's, unrealistic. I'm just saying that's what he's going to want. He's the IBF champion. That's ridiculous. So it's like if he's the champion, he's the active fighter. He's busy. He hasn't lost in years. He's going to want fifty fifty. And Matchroom is going to have to do right by their fighter. You know what I'm saying? Matchroom and Debella, they got to do right by their fighter and, and, and say, well, okay, this is what he wants. So and I, don't, I just don't see PBC going, you know what? We'll give you $8 million to take this fight. I don't see that shit happening. Yeah. I, I just don't. So it's unfortunate. But if, that, if Farmer does something extraordinary where the people really demand that fight, because right now it's just a beef between two guys. There aren't people that are like, I'm on Tevin Farmer's side. It's not happening. When people start going, yeah, Tevin should get this fight. Give us this fight. Then it'll happen. Two fighters wanting the fight, it's, it's not enough. It's just not enough. Yeah, I mean, it, for that to happen, then Javante has to keep mentioning Tevin's name after these big wins. Because yeah. Tevin's not going to do enough on his side to garner that attention. Javante I mean, has to make him a bigger threat, per se, than what he, he seems like. Because you watch the fights and he's just technically, he's technically better than everyone he fights. But he's not dominating them. So people aren't going to clamor to see him against Javante. Like, to their eyes, it's not a huge threat. So Javante has to talk him up and make him that threat. Yeah, and, and again, it's, you know, if you really want that belt, yeah, that's, you demand that fight. Like, Every fight. interview, Javante got to mention him. Javante got to talk shit. Javante got to say, stop fighting these bums. Tevin, you're better than that. You're number, you know, I'm number one. You're number two. Let's make this happen. He has to talk him up without like shitting on him. He has to talk him up. Be like, you know what? You're better than the rest of these bums. You're number two. Come face the number one. Yeah, that's probably not going to happen. So that, that's the only so, way he can make it big enough. Then. It's just the business of boxing gets in the way of the fights that we want to see. And this is the perfect issue. This is the perfect scenario where you look at a fight that should happen it's two guys that can unify titles. It seems like it should be easy to make, but because of the promotional lines, because of the networks, it's just going to be really hard for it to get done. Oh, and so that is boxing. Um, let's end this with UFC. And a card, I'm not going to lie to you, I really didn't give a fuck about. Um, it turned out to be as mediocre as I thought it was going to be. Uh, UFC 240. And it was a top-heavy card going into it. Watching that night, it turned out to be a top-heavy card. I was really there. What, last week, we only really predicted the final two fights. And to me, that's all I really cared about. So it started off in the main card with uh, two back-to-back decisions. And then we get Jeff Neal versus Nico Price, which was a good fight. That saw Jeff Neal wreck him in the second round. And I, Jeff Neal looks like the real deal. Moving up. Yeah, Jeff Neal does look really good. Um, Nico, Nico's a guy who I've liked because he always brings it when he fights. But, you know, he lost. So there's that. I, like, this card was weird because it was like, like, who wanted to pay for this shit? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, like, I'm, no one should have paid for this. <laughs> they were better off just scrapping this and putting it in the top-heavy fights on 241. This was a very strange card. Um, and I guess they figured they could get by with Cyborg fighting out the last fight of their contract and Max versus Frankie. But a lot of those fights weren't – nobody thought those were going to really be close fights. They weren't, like, incredibly competitive. And, like, people wanted to see Frankie, but no. Nobody wanted to pay for that. So yeah. and it then, was yeah. – I mean, you look at the co-main, Chris Cyborg versus Felicia Spencer – 
And the best thing people said was Spencer was tough as hell. And she lasted the distance. I was like, is that a compliment? Like, she, she was. She didn't get killed. But then again, if this was a championship fight, like every other Chris Cyborg fight was, or main event fight, then it would have went five rounds and Felicia would have got stopped. Like, her, her best quality was she can take an ass whooping. She was tough as nails. She split Cyborg open with a forehead. I was, like, watching this while I was watching the undercards. Um, I had a lot going on Saturday night. Uh, but, you know, I, I went back and listened to a little bit of the commentary. It was like there was an agenda there. I don't know why they were treating Cyborg the way they were. Um, same round close. Well, I mean, we know, I mean, we know why. But it's just weird to try to deliver that through commentary. Yeah. Because um, it wasn't a close fight. No. Cyborg was beating ass, and Felicia Spencer was tough as nails. Congratulations for getting your ass whooped. I, there's no moral victory in that. Um, <laughs> they tried everything they could to make it a moral victory. Now, now, if the agenda was to make the division look better and make Felicia still look good, so maybe they can build the division out further, then maybe I understand it. But it came off to the detriment of Chris Cyborg, who was whooping ass. It's just... Oh, boy. It just doesn't make any sense that, again, like I, we've already talked about the UFC being terrible at telling black and brown stories. And they just clearly don't like, like Dana clearly doesn't like Cyborg. They continue this narrative that she doesn't want to fight Amanda, even though she has a t-shirt that says Amanda Nunez rematch, even though she said it in every, every interview. That they made her take off. Yeah, and like she called Dana on the, on the shit. It's like, personally, I want Cyborg to leave. They're not treating her right there. Mm-hmm. I want her to go. She deserves to go to Bellator, claim their 145 title, beat up Julia Budd. Uh, well, actually, that would actually be a good fight. But, you know, at a certain point, you got to look at what the UFC and how they handle shit and just be like, this ain't for you. Yeah. And her versus Kayla should be a dope fight, like, if she went to PFL. Uh, not right now. Kayla ain't ready for them. I mean, yeah, the, the hell with it. I mean, she's a free agent right now. There's a million-dollar contract at the end of this shit. Just go take the mill. I just like in Kayla's case, I just want to see her get more fights. She ain't ready for somebody to throw his hands like Cyborg. Not yet. And you don't want to wreck somebody's confidence like that yet. You got <laughs> to kind of build it. Tell that to Bellator. Well, exactly. <laughs> no, yeah, but I mean, Cyborg got done dirty, but she won the decision. Clear, cut, decision, win. And then now, I mean, Nunez, there's no other fight besides Nunez. It was so fast. It was such a firefight that, hey, let's see it again. Yeah, I'm here like, for it, but like, why not? I'm, Cyborg, I'm not taking no shorts for that fight. Hell no. Like, you're going to have to pay me. Like, shit, that was the most dominant woman in MMA, and now you just treat me like a has-been. Oh, yeah. Nah. No, because they are legit main event caliber talent. So, nah, yeah, got to gotta pay her for that one. Um, and then Max Holloway, Frankie Edgar. No, Frankie just looked way too small. He was. And it's crazy to think, think of it like this. Max Holloway is probably one of the most dominant 145-pound guys in history. Yes. He moved up to lightweight, lost to Dustin Poirier. Not, I don't want to say very decisively, but it was, you know, it was really no doubt that Dustin Poirier won that fight. I think I had him up 2-1, and then he caught the knee to the face. It was never the same. I think he got concussed. But to put this in perspective, Frankie Edgar was a lightweight champion. <laughs> 155. At 155, and he looked like a midget against Max Holloway. The game like, done changed, right? The game done changed. No, like Frankie Edgar has been involved in so many remarkable fights. The Gray Maynard like fights were amazing. Yeah, BJ the, the Penn punches. is still fighting. 
Yeah, I mean, oh fuck PJ Tucker. Oh, <laughs> but you know, they, he had no chance against Max. He had there was he could do nothing to Max Holloway. No, he was too little, and he was a former lightweight champion. That's crazy to me. And he looked like he looked like he should be another division down. Yeah, and which he should. He should be in the bantamweight division. Unbelievable, but. I mean, that's his last shot. You know, I don't think we'll ever see Frankie in another, you know, big title fight. Um, oh, I, I can see him fighting Cejudo or someone. In a title fight? Yep. I don't. I don't. I think that the, he's, what, 37 now? I think this game's about to pass him by. So I just don't necessarily see him. I think the UFC is going to book him to get guys over. Maybe he'll be that, that stingy-ass gatekeeper that doesn't put anybody past him. Yeah, <laughs> where he's just chopping down talented young guys yeah, with his old I, man strength. I completely see the UFC putting rising talent up against him. I mean, that's what they did with Ortega. Well, he shouldn't have taken that, taken that fight, but his bad. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't see him, unless he strings together a bunch of wins, I don't think the UFC really wants to put him in another title fight. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to be tough. Um, I wouldn't mind seeing him versus Uriah again at some point. Not now that Uriah's back, like, fuck it. Just let old people go at it. Um, I'm not mad at that. I'm like, cool. give them some winnable fights. I hate when they just give all these old guys, like, tough-ass opponents. Yeah, I'm okay. Let them win a fight. If Uriah's going to fight anyway, fuck it. Memory lane. Um, yeah, man, but that, that was pretty much just that card. Next week, we have a lot more fights to preview. We have a week stacked full of pro wrestling. And I'm sure some other wild shit will pop off. So next week's going to be a crazy show. We'll figure out a time to record it since you'll be Disneylanding it up. Yeah. With the fam, which sounds super exciting. But uh, that's it for our show this week. We want to thank you guys for listening. Make sure you guys follow us on social media at The Corner LSN on our platforms. Uh, on Patreon, where we just dropped a new episode, a little break-off episode of this one on there at The Corner Podcast. And follow us on social media individually. Me at Kel Dansby, him at Andreas Hill. Until next week, we're out. Peace.